I believe that one of the positives that came out of COVID was mm. that it made us in sales enablement get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because mm. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way it was. And I think that's okay in some cases. And I don't believe that there is a new normal. What I do believe and subscribe to is there's a next normal. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. My guest in today's episode is a sales enablement leader with over 20 years of experience working with some of the most iconic brands in B2B enterprise technology. These brands include Marketo, Oracle, NetApp, Salesforce, and more. He has recently been awarded the Sales Enablement Lifetime Achievement Award by Selling Power Magazine and has also been named one of the top 10 LinkedIn sales and marketing influencers. His recently published book, Sales Enablement 3.0, is a blueprint for sales enablement excellence that has achieved instant category bestseller status. Today, I'm speaking to Netscope's VP of Field Enablement, Roderick Jefferson. Roderick, thank you so much for joining today. Felix, thanks for having me. I am absolutely honored to be here. I have to say, when I first looked at your LinkedIn profile, it pretty much looked like a profile that you would make up if you wanted to position yourself as a thought leader in sales enablement. Tell us briefly about what your career journey has been so far and what you do now. First of all, thanks for that. I've never actually heard it described that way. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> way to look at it. From a background perspective, I'm a sales guy. I started out as a BDR inside BizDevRep, dialing for dollars, and did well, got promoted to AE, went to President's Club a couple of times, and then got promoted to sales leader, which I promptly turned down because yeah. I realized at the time that I absolutely loved the process of selling more than I did taking down big deals. So as any good salesperson did, talked myself into a new role of regional trainer. So I went to my sales leader and said, what if I could take all of my tools and templates and such, which were pretty rudimentary at the time, to be honest, but spread that across the entire region? And he said, well, you've got a new job. And yeah. so that was my first foray into training. And from there, I moved into, and I've run enablement at Siebel Systems, Network Appliance, eBay, HP, Oracle, Salesforce, and Marketo. And then I decided, because I'm a masochist, why not go out and consult on my own, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, what I wanted to do was, I felt like I'd gotten to ivory tower and I was becoming more of a theorist than a practitioner. So I wanted to get back in and get my hands dirty again and roll up my sleeves and was very fortunate. Companies like American Express and Uber and Olympus Medical and Showpad and Integrate were clients. So did well, but then realized I really missed running a team and being part of a leadership team and grooming. And most importantly, I started to feel like kind of the fixtures of broken things and broken people mm. because I never got a chance to see the actual end of projects, just putting things together and then moving on. And so before I step off of this, I will say I am honored to say that I'm actually the person that coined the phrase sales enablement and thus wrote the book on it <laughs> as well about 15 years ago. And it's interesting. And I always say that if you ask 10 people what sales enablement is, you'll probably get 12 answers. And none of those answers would be wrong. It's all dependent upon where a company is in the maturation cycle and their growth cycle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love what you said about creating your first role. I think that's a pitch hardly any sales leader would turn down if somebody tells them, okay, how about I make your sales team better? <laughs> <laughs> so who's gonna, what leader is going to say no to, I can get more people productive faster 
and more productivity per head and potentially more people going to President's Club, they're not going to say no to that. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly what happens. Like at all the companies that you mentioned, Oracle, Salesforce, and so on, you occupy global leadership roles in the sales enablement space. How did you go about scaling sales enablement? Because it's such a fine art in terms of how you navigate metrics versus the soft skills that you need to really engage people and really grow salespeople. How did you scale that approach across regions? I'd say it's both an art and a science because there are actually some metrics that put around it. But when I look at an organization and I step in and I've already done my assessment and all that fun stuff, and I look at whether or not we have enough resources, what I do is generally take a global regional approach. I want someone that's in the regions because to me, sales enablement is about being a part and an extension of the sales team. It's not sales scribes, it's not sales support, and it's certainly not sales servants. It's literally a partner that sits in. So I want someone that's going to sit in with the leadership teams in their team meetings, be an active part of the QBRs and be enmeshed and ingrained into the sales team so that they can sit and also listen on call. And I believe you need someone in dirt to actually get that done. Someone that understands the cultural differences and how business is done. So always at the program manager level, these are the folks that literally are the eyes and ears that sit in on the meetings. They find out what the pain is. They come back and we help to diagnose it. And on the diagnosis side, sometimes it's aspirin or Advil. Sometimes it's Vicodin. And sometimes it's an extraction or an amputation to stop the bleeding right away. So they, they're all a part of this piece. And then you start looking around and you say, okay, we've got sales engineers. We've got BDRs, biz devs, sometimes SDRs. Then you've got post-sales, the customer support CSMs or CX. You've got to have someone that's overseeing each of those because while they are similar, and I usually get things about 80, 85%. There are some nuances in each one of those that mm. make a big difference. Then you need someone that's responsible for content creation, because now you've got all these different audiences. You've got to get those nuanced content. And they also sit as a part of the connection into product marketing and into product management and all the other pieces. So now we've got those pieces in place. Now we can move forward. And eventually as they grow, Now you've got folks that are handling all of these program management pieces. You also may want to look at a coordinator, someone that is kind of twofold. One, that's responsible for all of the logistical pieces of pre-COVID and going back that direction when we start traveling again. All of the logistics for the classrooms and all the content that has to be shipped and the catering and those kind of things. But they also serve a couple of other purposes. One of those is that they are that glue that kind of keeps all the program managers together and make sure that everyone is working collaboratively and cohesively. And because of that, I don't look at this as an internship or an admin for the program manager. No, no, no. Actually, a better way to look at it is these are folks that you can actually groom to move and step into one of those program manager spots. So mm -hmm. they are seen as a peer from day one. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question? It did. It did. So it's really, it is a clear career path for those sales enablement folks, like in global organizations that you could see of people progressing from a coordinator, then through to becoming a regional leader. To a program manager, and then from there into a leadership position. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. You briefly touched on it. And that's also a part of your book that I particularly liked. Just to share with the audience, Sales Enablement 3.0, highly recommend everybody in Sales Enablement reading it. Awesome resource. One thing that you particularly touch on in this book is the nuances of communication between sales enablement and other departments. And 
I absolutely love that because not a lot of books actually talk about that topic and it's a really essential soft skill to have, especially in larger organizations, as I've experienced myself working for corporates here in Australia. How would you describe that translation skill and who are those departments that sales enablement would typically have to do translation work for? Absolutely. And this is what I call the Holy Trinity. It's about communication, collaboration, and orchestration. So let me give it to you in an analogy. Think about an orchestra. You've got percussion, strings, woodwinds, you've got brass, and they're all trying to play the right song. And sometimes the notes are out of phase and sometimes they're kind of flat or sour notes. Now let's align that to lines of business, marketing, product marketing, product management, HR, engineering, sales, and enablement. Same thing. We're all trying to do the right thing on behalf of the prospect or the customer, but sometimes the communication lacks. We're not all talking at the same speed or even the same language. And I call us the translators of dialects and languages. And I'll get to that one in just a moment. And so now what happens is they're all trying to play these things and trying to do the right things on behalf of the prospect and customers, but it's not collaborated. Sometimes the messaging is off. Sometimes it doesn't fit for the particular ideal customer profile, or as things shift, it may be a little late in the game of shifting until, and here's where the orchestration piece comes in. One person or one organization that I believe is enablement steps up, taps the stand, and now all of that noise and chaos becomes an absolutely beautiful piece of music. That's what enablement does. We are the connectors. We're that hub that spokes out to every other part of the organization. And to that translators of dialects and languages that I mentioned earlier, I think we've got to be able to speak all those languages, product marketing, marketing, product management, et cetera. And don't expect them to speak sales enablement ease. And here's how I've done it successfully in my career. I'm still an old sales guy at heart, so I love to go and listen on calls. And so now I listen to a number of calls, and I come back and I say, product marketing. I've listened to eight, nine calls, and I've heard this company pitch, slide seven, being shown seven different ways in messaging and positioning. Can we either smooth that out, or can we take it out? Because right now, it seems to be confusing our prospects or customers. Product management. I've heard this five, six times for this particular request. How do we get that moved up on the release cycle? And then I go back to sales and say, you know, sales, I think what's going on, and I'm seeing this, is that we have our ICP of ideal customer or client profile, but because we don't have enough acronyms, I don't think we have the right IEP, which is the ideal employee profile. Because as the company shifts, think about this. You go from the volume velocity sale into a more complex sale, and if you get large enough, into a really big ticket, long relationship sale. What I'm finding out is, our sellers now are not quite mature enough because the buyers are looking like me, older folks with seasoned gray hair. And I even had one buyer tell me, no disrespect, but I've got belts and shoes older than this kid that's trying to sell to me. How can they possibly <laughs> relate to me, right? Of course, we all had a laugh at that one. But when you think about it, as the company matures, your IEP or ideal employee profile should also shift along with that maturation growth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a topic I've come across quite often recently in terms of the balance that you need to strike between methodology and metrics and KPIs and considering the human element, the salesperson and their own style. You don't want to create a robot. And Correct. at the same time, performance is obviously important, but you need to create the boundaries for the salesperson to perform at their personal best with their personal style. How do you see, especially larger organizations that need frameworks to be able to scale their approach, manage that balance? 
why don't we take it from the metrics perspective since you brought that one up? One way is making sure that enablement is a part of the leadership team and that we are not talking about training here, Hmm. talking about true enablement, which should be woven into the fabric of the company. It should be one of the top go-to-market initiatives, Hmm. not a standalone organization. To that point, then meeting with the top sales leader, whether it's the VP of sales or the CRO, et cetera, and saying, let's understand, first of all, what does success look like for you? Hmm. And what's the success criteria for you? particularly. And is it about accelerating speed of revenue? Is it about increasing productivity per head? Or is it about making sure that you have more people that are hitting quota? What are we doing? And so then you can step back and say, aha, we've got the right metrics. And I firmly believe that there are two different types of metrics when it comes to sales. One that enablement impacts and influences. And I'm going to stop for a moment and say to my sales enablement folks, we do not drive revenue unless you carry a bag. Please stop saying that. (laughs) We impact and we influence it. Unless you want to take on a quota and get out there every month, then you're driving revenue. So back to the metrics. On the side that I think we influence, things like average deal size, collateral use and frequency, deal velocity, new pipeline created, number of closed deals, product mix, quota attainment, quarter over quarter, as well as annual, time to first close. And now I've even moved to time to second close because that first close as a salesperson You may have stepped into something that was already midstream or a large whale or bluebird that landed your way. And then finally, win rates, win and loss percentage rates. Now, here's what enablement, I believe, owns. Things like the certification and accreditations, the biannual needs analysis, the program-based surveys, the usage stats from your learning management system, your content management system, the types of communications that are being deployed to sales and how they're going out, as well as e-learning stats and things of that sort. In terms of the actual buy-in for sales enablement, you touched that like it should be woven into the fabric of an organization. Australian market, obviously, just due to the population size, way less resourced than the American market. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. organizations out here that are just starting out implementing sales enablement. And it's a lot of times not even dedicated roles that look after that function. It's a marketing manager that wants to start pushing into that space, for example, How would you tackle that conversation around ensuring buy-in for sales enablement as a function within the organization? Great question. And I've actually started my career a number of times as a team of one. (laughs) So I know what it's like to walk in as the only sales enablement resource and you've got a great problem to have. And that is there's so much that you can go and do that it's hard to figure out where do you start? Because I firmly believe enablement, we can do anything, but we can't do everything. So where I always begin is a two-step process. One is going back to sitting down with the sales leader because the further you get away from the sun, the colder it gets. Sales is the sun. So there are times where I've reported all over, but I've realized the most effective is reporting into sales because now you're directly tied to the hip. You're sitting in on the forecast calls. You're sitting in on the leadership meetings. You understand where we are in regards to the win and loss percentage. So start with that piece is start with the sales leader and go back, as I said, define what success looks like Don't take on more than five things because beyond that, you are setting yourself up for failure and five big rocks, not the little tiny things underneath it, but five clear initiatives. And then make sure that all this is in writing because things move around all the time. And this way, it ensures that the goalpost doesn't move, if you will, when you think you're about to score and suddenly you realize you're ages away from where the scoring piece is. The next piece is it begins with a charter and a charter defines what enablement is responsible for and what enablement is not responsible for. Now, I want to be clear. That's not saying this is not my job. What it's saying is 
these things on that list are not the most effective and impacting activities for a sales enablement resource. Don't build that charter alone. I say build the framework and then sit down with sales and marketing and product marketing, et cetera, and make sure you get their input and make sure that they get a chance to vet this because there's nothing worse than walking in thinking this thing is fully baked and them going, yeah, that doesn't work here. That may have worked where you were before, but that's not going to work here. So never give the internal customers, and I don't call them stakeholders because I think stakeholders, you're kind of betrothed into them. Internal customers, make sure that they all have a voice in this. They may not have the final vote, but make sure they all have a voice. And this way you start building up that ecosystem of partnership with all of the other lines of business. You also um, show that their impression and their opinion and input matter. Absolutely. That's the best way to gain buy-in if you involve people in the development of those goals. How can you say no to something that you've come up with? Yeah. Communication, collaboration, and orchestration. Yeah, That's yeah. really what it comes down to. So you were involved in a few mergers and acquisitions throughout your career. I think it was mainly businesses that you worked for that were acquired. Is that correct? No, I've been through 14 M&A activities. I've been acquired and acquired. Example, when I came into Salesforce, I came in through a little tiny acquisition, a company called Jigsaw years ago. We sold B2B contacts. It was in Siebel. We acquired a number of companies. Also, when I came into Oracle, we were essentially an acquisition, but we were a bit different. Oracle Marketing Cloud is the group I sat in. And we were the first ever standalone company inside of Oracle. I called us the most well-funded startup on the planet, thanks to Uncle Larry. (laughs) (laughs) But we were literally a startup. We had our own executive team, our own sales, our own marketing, our own enablement, our own IT. Mm -hmm. So again, been a part of being acquired as well as acquiring and also worked at Marketo, which was acquired by private equity. Mm. Throughout the acquisition process, what sort of role did sales enablement play in there? Like what kind of challenges did you have to navigate to manage that cultural change? And in some cases, even the restructure of the sales team? You nailed it. It's primarily the cultural change. Mm. By the time you do all the due diligence, I've been part of the due diligence teams in my career because we have to look at culturally, how is this going to blend? By the time I come in, we've already decided that, yes, we can mesh the technology and all the other hardware pieces and all of the cloud pieces that come as far as the products and solution and platform. I'm looking at this culturally. How are we going to indoctrinate this new company into what I call a culture of learning, which is the way that we start from onboarding all the way through continuing education, including role-specific enablement and leadership coaching enablement. That's one piece. The other thing I'm looking at is what does their current tool stack look like and how will that mesh into what we have, right? So now it's, what are we going to have to retire? What are we going to bring along? And in some cases, we've actually retired some of the things that we had because the acquiring company may have had a stronger tool stack. So now you've got to get the cultural, the people together. You've got to understand how we're going to get everybody up to speed in a quick manner in regards to understanding the messaging and positioning of the new company. You've got to make sure that the cultures match and mesh and explain to them in a very, very nice, caring and, and loving way. Mm-hmm. that we acquired you, so there's going to be some changes. And then easing them into those changes as much as you can and making sure that you've got all of this documented and that there's a consistent, scalable, and repeatable process in place to do it. No, You're not recreating the wheel every time it happens. 
Yeah, exactly. I've worked in the media industry for years and there's probably hardly any industry that's changed as much as the media industry (laughs) in the last decade. And there weren't even acquisitions, there were more restructures internally and even those were a challenge. Merging a print sales team with a digital sales team, that cultural (laughs) shift alone, even though previously they were just sitting on a different floor as a challenge already. So I can can imagine what that would look like if you have to merge the full business. Imagine large companies merging with completely diametrically opposite cultures. Yeah. That sometimes steps across the line from merger and acquisition into hostile takeover. Mm. And I've, I've seen yeah. how yeah. that goes too. So speaking of cultural change, obviously one of the biggest cultural changes in recent history in sales as a profession has been the pandemic and social distancing and the way business is conducted. You're in California, I'm in Australia, so we probably wouldn't sit in the same room today. But even when it comes to <laughs> probably not. Yeah, even when it comes to local business transactions, it has become a remote play, a remote sales conversation. How would you describe that change and how would you describe the way companies that have managed this change well, what have they done right? I'll say this to start. I believe that one of the positives that came out of COVID was Mm. that it made us in sales enablement get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. And what I mean is technology has shifted over the last 15, 20 years, but the way that we go about the enablement program and processes really Mm. hasn't changed much. It was a lot of face-to-face. It was a lot of, I get to know you and warm and fuzzy because that's who we are as enablement practitioners. But when this happened, it made everyone stop for a moment and go, wait a minute, this is not the same and this is not the norm that we're used to, right? And I think that there were five things positively that came out of this for sales enablement. The first is we all had to pause because the initial shock of change dominated and consumed all of our thoughts, our motives, and our actions. Then we moved forward and we started hearing about what? all of the infection rates and how we had never seen this. We hadn't had a pandemic in a hundred years. That's the next P, panic. It was about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And from there, it stepped towards, I think, where we are right now, which is in the planning phase. We're looking at goals and deliverables and metrics again. Even hiring is starting to pick up again. So there's a lot of optimism that's going on. And the next phase, I believe, for us is progress. That's where you start to see excitement and optimism and advancement and things starting to get back to close to normal. And I want to talk about that in a moment. And then the final P is prosperity. We will get there where we'll see success and expansion and growth and mergers and acquisitions and those things happening again. But it's Mm -hmm. going to take some time Mm -hmm. because I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way it was. And I think that's okay in some cases. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that there is a new normal. What I do believe and subscribe to is there's a next normal. I want to go back to the point that you made around reducing the amount of noise and being more personalized in the way you approach buyers. What sort of role would you say content plays in that whole approach? Content is a huge piece in Mm. that because we don't get to deliver content the way that we used to. Mm. We Mm. also don't have as much flexibility and leeway. I read somewhere that it was 80% into the sales cycle before a prospect would bring in or reach out to a salesperson. Mm. And that upwards of 30% of prospects and customers said, if they never had to talk to a salesperson, they wouldn't. Mm. Wow. So think about what content means now and think about the availability of content being more readily available today than any time I think in the history of man. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where enablement and product marketing work hand in hand. One is making sure that we've got the right content right time, and it's tied to the right ideal client and customer profile. 
but that it's also globalized at mm. about 80, 85%, because mm. then you allow wiggle room for how culture happens, how business is done in those given regions and those pieces. Now, taking that and translating it into sales speak is where enablement comes in. Mm. And this is where it starts to get fun because I don't think the virtual selling is going to go away anytime soon. Mm. So mm. with that in mind, we have to enable differently. I said before, it used to be face-to-face. -face. Now I'm on, like everyone else, eight, 10 Zoom calls a day. So how do you now build an onboarding for new hires virtually? That's mm. a tough mm. one. And then how do you enable your legacy folks to ensure that there's always continuing education so you're sharpening the sword for them so that they're not being sent out to war with a plastic spoon, if you will. Mm. I think this is where enablement really gets to shine. Yeah, and there yeah. are four ways. First, I think it's about building a virtual level of rapport differently. We don't get to go out for happy hours anymore. You can't go play golf the way we used to and close deals. Now it's how do I build that rapport with you across this virtual space that we have between us? And how do I make it so that it comes across as authentic and real? And I think it's actually pretty simple, but it's harder to do. And that is stop selling products, stop selling solutions, stop selling platforms. And if you're going to sell, the only thing you should be selling is the experience that this prospect or customer can get by only partnering with your company. That's mm -hmm. one. The second is about creating a virtual community. It's now imperative that you have that content management system where your sellers can go to one location, not four or five. They're not going to go to that many. They're going to start making stuff up or they're going to start borrowing it from the person that's nearest to them or the rock stars that are being successful. So building that virtual community of content and assets. And again, this is where enablement and product marketing get to partner. The company I'm at now, we meet on a monthly basis. We pull the top and the bottom 20 assets out of our content management system. And we now are putting in a content retirement process so that we can sunset the old stuff. We mm. want it to be as fresh and new as possible for our sellers. Then put in a rating system. If you can, get a five-star like Netflix, one through five. And that way, when you go back to product marketing, if you're an enablement practitioner, you're not saying, I think this, or we're retiring it because I feel like we should. We're saying, this is coming directly from the voice of the field. And we're mm. retiring it because they don't see it as useful and usable. Hmm. The next thing is you got to find a way to fight virtual fatigue. Like I said, we're all on eight, 10 Zoom calls a day. And the way I look at it, there are three components. Everything that we put out from a content perspective, from product marketing, from product management, from enablement, has to have three components. It has to be engaging, has to keep them interactive. Otherwise, we're inviting them to go off and multitask because we already know how short the attention span is. And the third piece is, it has to be edutaining. You've got to give them something to keep their attention and keep them involved and engaged. And giving away free things and prizes is always a great way with sales folks. And another way is keep it competitive. Sales folks are naturally competitive. Why would we not use that to our advantage? Because the fourth piece of this is about customer service. And I don't care if you're face-to-face. -face, I don't care if you are virtual. The level of customer service and support that has to be given cannot slip just mm. because you're virtual. Mm. Even more so now, you've got to take time to be able to reach out and say, hey, here's where we are. What can we do to help you guys? Where are we going? Want to make sure that you're in tune of what's coming. What are your needs? What are your pain? And I'm talking about tying the front of the house of sales together with the back of the house of customer support and customer success, right? Mm. Otherwise, you build a big, beautiful house with a short hallway that your customers are tripped out of the back door. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly.
I think that orchestration of a new experience that is, first of all, seamless, as you said, between departments, because the customer doesn't care whether they interact with a marketing channel, with a salesperson or a customer success person. That's how you deliver what you promise the customer. But it's up to you to deliver that seamless experience to make it a great one and to keep the customer engaged. And I think right. content plays a big part of it, especially in the enterprise space, because oh, you've got those direct relationships with buyers and... So sales cycles can be really long and for the salesperson to continuously add value, you need to utilize them like a direct content distribution channel and be able to continuously provide content, as you said, that's really engaging, but educational at the same time and doesn't waste the buyer's time. Nobody has time for that. Yeah, they've got yeah. things they've got to get done. And it goes back to those three components, communication, collaboration, and orchestration. Hmm. And the best way I've seen for this to work is a lot of companies try and say, this is our selling methodology. This is our sell stages. These are our selling motions. So what? That mm. seven bucks will get you a latte. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what if we could up-level this and say, let's look at this from the perspective of the buyer's journey. Understand what they're buying, why they're buying, and how we can help to meet their need. Then come down and talk about the sales methodology, the sales stages, the selling mm. motions, all of the content assets, and then finally at that bottom layer, the foundational level, all of the sales enablement activities that come into play. If we build things in that order, now it's a game changer for our customers because now we become customer centric and we're not trying to shoehorn them in to the buying cycle and the buying process for us. We're actually trying to learn their language and then also understand what their needs are and mm -hmm. work it from the angle of the buyer's journey not the seller's activity. I think another interesting dynamic that I see in enterprise sales conversations is that you oftentimes have an internal champion who might be the end user of the product, but they're not the decision maker. They are absolutely desperate to be able to succinctly communicate the value to the business, but they're not being enabled by sales, so to speak. So they're not being provided with the information or the content that they can share with their superiors that actually brings it into a business context. And I think speaking of indirect communication, you know, like if you're not even able, like as a salesperson, to get in front of the people making the decisions and you're just dealing through a internal champion, it's even more important to actually have that content available to succinctly communicate the value to different departments and use that internal champion as a distribution channel as well. And that's where the orchestration comes. Mm. And you've got to make sure that all of the pieces are in sync. Sales has to let product marketing know, here's where we are, what's the right content and assets. And then enablement plays that center part to make sure that we're brokering between mm. the two. But it's also about we've got this special need or this case study or this referral that we need that looks like this. Marketing, do we have someone that looks similar to this that we've worked with before? And if so, are they referenceable? And how can we get that over to my prospect as fast as possible? It's a lot of plate spinning, if you will. So you've got yeah. to make sure that nothing falls and, and cracks on the ground. Yeah, and yeah. if sales, marketing, product marketing, and enablement are working hand in hand, oh, it's a beautiful thing to see. Absolutely. In your book also, you speak about the evolution of sales enablement and where it's come from and where it's going. What are your thoughts on that? Like, What's next for sales enablement? I think that it's about sales enablement getting away from being viewed as the fixtures of broken things, being viewed as coordinators, schedulers, or even just training. And I think enablement has an opportunity to play a huge role in the go-to-market strategy of the company. And what I mean is woven into the fabric, and if this is done from the top down, now it's no longer a sales enablement initiative. It's a go-to-market activity. And so now you're working with all of the different lines of business and we're all working in concert together to move forward. 
And I think that enablement has an opportunity, certainly, to decrease time to revenue, to increase productivity. But more importantly, I think we have an opportunity to put programs in place that can help our prospects and customers, especially in today's market, maintain the customers that they have today and grow them. I think we can help them mitigate risk. I think we can help them reduce costs. And at the end of the day, I think that enablement will become a strategic component of companies rather than seeing as a byproduct of a company. Mm-hmm. I love that. And from a technology point of view, where do you see some of the emerging technologies that are being involved in taking sales enablement to the next level? I think that AI is actually going to be a big piece in machine learning. Mm-hmm. And it's happening right now. Companies mm-hmm. are taking things from a metrics perspective and tying AI into it. And now they're able to figure out trends. We're able to figure out the highs and lows and why people are not being successful faster and how to replicate those rock stars a bit easier rather Mm. than the manual pieces. And even when you think about the metrics of coming from surveys or coming from accreditations and certifications, there's a time all that was manual. Now Mm. it can be fed in to the gunkulator, as I call it, (laughs) and it can spit all that out. Think about the productivity that it creates if you're not spending all that time manually trying to figure out those trends and all of those metrics. And I also think that there's going to become a static set of tool stack. And it's what I call demystifying the darkness. It's how do you align all of your different technology resources? I think it's going to come down to really six pieces in the future. A learning management system and content management system. Then you're going to have your prospecting and your sales reporting tools. You'll also need your marketing automation tools. Of course, you're going to integrate your communication tool. And then what I call sales enablement platforms And then finally, those revenue intelligence listening tools where you can do coaching in real time rather than having to wait until later as a lagging indicator. Mm. Oh, I think that the fun is just getting started for sales (laughs) enablement and how we can actually help sales folks and help customers. Can you tell I love this? (laughs) I can. So from your perspective, I always like to ask that question just to pass on the knowledge and the love to the sales enablement community. From your perspective, if somebody's just started out in sales enablement, what career advice would you give them? And somebody who, for the first time, tackles a global sales enablement role, what advice would you give them? I'm going to give them similar advice. And that is, one, make sure you never give sales what you think they need. Always go and ask the questions and vet and build along with them. Second, remember, you've got to be that hub that spokes out to every other part of the organization. So make sure that you build relationships with each one of those individual lines of business. And then thirdly, you can't hope that you've got the right tools. You can't hope that they're going to understand what you're looking for. You can't hope that they're going to believe in you. You can't hope that you're going to be successful. Because if you've seen anything I put up on social media, Felix, my favorite hashtag, hope is not a strategy. (laughs) I love that. Speaking of social media, where can people find you online and what are some of the many content channels that they can engage with? We mentioned your book before, but you do many other things as well. Yes. So on the social media perspective, I'm on LinkedIn at Roderick Jefferson. I'm also on Instagram at Roderick underscore J underscore associate. You can find me on Twitter at The Voice of Rod. If you are just starting out moving into sales enablement, I've been fortunate enough to create a baseline online course through Udemy that literally will walk you through everything I've talked about today at a deeper level. And I'm actually giving away some of my tools and templates inside of the course as well. So I want to make sure that everyone has access to these things. That's the great thing about enablement. We don't harbor and hold on. I don't think 
we don't feel like we're valuable because of what we hold on to. A true practitioner, we know we're invaluable because of what we share. So there's that. And the final piece is if you are a practitioner thinking about going to practitioning as a sales enablement practitioner, or if you're in sales or marketing or any of the other groups, the book is actually written for you. It's about communication. It's about collaboration. And it's all about orchestration. You can find it on Amazon globally. Awesome. Roderick, on that note, thank you so much for joining. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. My absolute pleasure and honor. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at krugermarketing.com learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn.